today we're doing a whole lineup of different environmentally themed uh, Skype a Scientist live sessions. We did plastic pollution, we're doing climate change right now, doing biodiversity at 3.30 p.m. Um, and then we're doing Earth Day at 4.30. And so uh, it's a big celebration leading up to Earth Day next week. So we're talking about Earth Day, even if we have to stay stuck inside right now. Um, so yeah, we are a nonprofit organization bringing uh, science communication to as many people as humanly possible, making everybody feel welcome in science. And we are totally donor supported. Um, and we kind of rely on people that use the program to um, help keep us going. We're a stu super small group, um, just me and a couple part-time people. Um, and we uh, totally need you to exist. So if you can support us at patreon.com slash Skype a scientist or uh, pay pal.me slash Skype a scientist. Donating either way is really amazing um, and totally tax deductible because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, so with that, I'm going to hand it over to Sarah. Sarah, if you want to introduce yourself, say who you are, uh, what you study, why you like it, and then we'll roll right into a Q&A. Okay, uh, great. Uh, yeah, so I'm Sarah Sanchez and I study uh, climate variability and um, how climate change will affect that. So I guess there's a few things uh, to straighten out a little bit first is, uh, so the climate can change naturally, even without adding any greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. Our climate changes a lot. Um, some of those examples are ice ages um, to interglacials, or another one that maybe many of you are familiar with are El Nino events, where we can sometimes have years that are El Nino years or La Nina years. And so actually more of um, studying El Ninos or La Ninas um, together, they're called the El Nino Southern Oscillation is kind of my jam. Um, it's a really cool um, thing to study. Um, it's looking at how the tropical or tropical Pacific Ocean and atmosphere interact um, and looking at how those kind of interactions have changed over time is a lot of, I guess, what I do. And um, another really cool element of studying this is uh, we don't have instrumental observations in really remote areas like the middle of the Pacific Ocean going really far back in time. So I get to play around with a lot of really cool and kind of unusual data sets to try and study this. So some of these are um, a little bit more well-known like climate models where they're pretty much parameterized to how we think the world operates, like the math that we think in physics that we think govern our world. Um, and then another thing that I get to use a lot are paleoclimate data sets. So tree rings, a lot of people are familiar with, but as you might suspect, there aren't very many trees in the middle of the Pacific, but there are a lot of coral cores or corals. And some species of corals can live to be hundreds of years old. And similar to tree rings, they put on a new band each year they're alive. And if you look at their chemistry, they're actually really great recorders of environmental variables like temperature and salinity and things that climate scientists really care about. So I kind of use a mix of all of these to try and look at how um, the tropical Pacific has changed through time and to get us a better idea of how it might change in the future. Awesome. So when you're like uh, sampling a coral, how physically do you do that? And what tools do you use to like assess what the temperature and CO2 was like in the environment at the time? Yeah, that's a really good question. So that's kind of a couple of parts. So one, uh, to sample a coral. Um, so the species of corals that we sample um, are these giant parietes that can grow to be about the size of like a Volkswagen beetle. Each year they're alive, they grow about maybe a centimeter to a centimeter and a half. Um, and so what we do is we scuba dive down. This is only if you're collecting living coral. You can also collect fossil coral, which might be washed up on a beach somewhere. But if you're collecting living coral, you're scuba diving down, you've got this giant drill and you just 
um, drill out a core um, and you pull it out and it kind of looks like a, just a massive piece of chalk because the inside is kind of like white calcium carbonate, very similar to chalk. <laughs> um, right, and so that can actually take like several hours and is like really complicated um, because you've got a lot of expensive machinery and you're trying to get this precious core out without damaging the coral um, while you also have like waves surging. And um, it can be, uh, yeah, going out in the field is the most fun part, but it's definitely a lot of work. Um, and then, so once we have these coral cores, so some of them that you can drill can be actually like meters in length. Um, and so we take it back to the lab, you can slab it, um, and then you sample going down about every millimeter. You just get a little bit of like the coral growth. Um, and we can look at its chemistry and it will tell us um, different chemical um, species and uh, yeah, different uh, isotopes. So one thing that we measure a lot is oxygen 18, um, which is in the coral, and that can tell us a lot about the temperature that the coral grew in. Um, and I can get more into that if you're interested. Um, and I, there are other ways from corals, we don't actually get measurements of atmospheric carbon dioxide, but a lot of people are interested in trying to see if we can get records of past um, seawater pH from coral archives. And that's a really new kind of proxy that's still being developed uh, using boron isotopes. Um, which is cool. Yeah. Cool. So I've heard, okay, so we have multiple kind of coring methods to yeah. assess past climate. We've got our coral cores, we've got our tree rings. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're saying coral, like what is the maximum look back in time that we can get with coral? Yeah, that's a good question. I believe there are records that go back um, uh, at least several hundred thousand years they might oh. even be million years um from um like the far western pacific but those aren't living corals so sometimes what will happen is a coral dies underwater but then um i don't know it can get like washed on shore and we can find a fossil coral and then sample that and then using other sorts of geochemistry we can kind of tell when that coral was alive but still if we look at that fossil corals uh geochemistry we can tell I don't know, we can still get kind of monthly resolution data from whenever that coral was alive. So there are really cool archives, um, like um, there's a lab at Georgia Tech um, run by um, Kim Cobb, who has this really cool archive of just um, climate variability over the central tropical Pacific going back like over the last thousand years, or now she's got another one, like kind of goes back about 7,000 years, but um, where it's just kind of spliced together these modern and fossil corals that give a lot of data. Amazing. So do corals go back farther than um, ice or trees would go? Um, no, not consistently. So with these coral, fossil corals, I mean, it would be great if we could just know like how old it is, but it's actually a lot of work to kind of get it at the right point in time. And a lot of these fossil corals are maybe like a hundred years long max. So you just kind of have scattered snapshots at random points in time. Um, but ice cores, uh, you can get continuously like resolved. Um, Samples going back in time. Um, trying to think of like the longest ice core I know of. One really famous one goes back 800,000 years. Um, it's two miles long. Like it was this giant international collaborative effort, um, and it just gave gives like really good data. And it's just kind of continuous as you're able to sample back in time. So um, it would be amazing if we could do that kind of thing with coral data, but we can't. Um, that is wild. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we've got a question, uh, and 
this may, there may, well, anyway, I'm just gonna ask it. How do you drill the coral without hurting it? Yeah, so you can't say that it's totally harmless. First off, you have to get a lot of um, permits from the country that you're going to, and then there's um, international CITES permits, which is, I forget what CITES stand for, but it's something like endangered species something. Um, yeah, but yeah. there's a, first off, there's a huge permitting process, so you can't just willy-nilly go in and start grabbing living coral. Um, but what we try to do is try to make it as harmless for the coral as possible. So coral uh, is just like this crazy animal. And so the boulders that, like boulder corals that we sample, um, all of the polyps on the outside of this boulder are kind of the living part of the coral. And so when we core, we are killing the living part of the coral that's on the core that we take. That's just gonna be gone. So maybe that's maybe like three inches in um, diameter or something from this core. Um, but you try not to touch the rest of the coral while you're drilling. And then after we extract this core, we do plug up the hole with some marine friendly epoxy. Um, so we don't want any sort of other animals or algae getting into that core green hole and like damaging the coral afterwards. Um, and so a lot of these sites we go to um, with other marine biologists. And so people are able to keep an eye on like where we drilled and can kind of see how well the coral's doing afterwards. Awesome. Um, have you ever personally found a fossil? Um, yes. I, I mean, I, uh, I guess it kind of depends on like what kind of context we're thinking of as like a fossil. Like, um, when I was, uh, doing undergraduate research, I got to work on doing, um, sampling some marine sediment cores, which are another, uh, paleoclimate archive that we haven't actually talked about, um, where you're actually looking for kind of fossilized um, uh, like bugs in the water, uh, sometimes called foraminifera, and we're kind of uh, picking those out of um, the marine sediment to look at their chemistry. Um, but I personally have only really looked, worked with um, modern or like living corals, uh, collecting them. So what part of the coral is alive? Uh, so it's just kind of that uppermost like thin layer. So like some of these boulder corals I said could get as big as cars, but it's really just maybe like, um, I don't know, like half a centimeter at the top where it's kind of like living. Uh, it's really small, but um, yeah, they're, yeah, uh, they're not as lively as other animals that you know of, uh, but <laughs> or might think of, but they're still um, technically an animal. The closer you look at a coral, the more alive it looks, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, when you get up close, like, kind of scuba diving, you can kind of see, um, I don't know, like, if you, there's, like, a current or something, like, you can kind of see some of the polyps, like, close up or something, which kind of gives you a sense of life. Um, a friend um, does work developing, um, like, really high-resolution, like, um, cameras for microscopes that you can put underwater and he's done some work actually looking at how corals behave underwater and you can actually see some sort of like cool interactions um, that take place. Awesome. Um, so I'm pretty sure this question was submitted as a joke but I am legitimately interested okay. in, the, um, in the answer. Yeah. So is the, qu the question is does coral poop and I, I don't know like yeah I don't think yeah no from <laughs> <laughs> like symbiotic algae that live inside of them. Yeah, yeah, so they have kind of two sources of energy. So some corals are actually able to eat 
like really small thing out of the water, but the symbiotic algae is kind of what the corals are most famous for. So these symbiotic algae called zooxanthellae like live inside the coral and kind of are what gives coral its color. And so um, these algae kind of take in sunlight and give off um, nutrients that the coral then uses as food. Um, and then in return, the coral kind of gives these um, algae a place to live. Um, and I don't know, as the coral is growing, what it's doing is it's constantly excreting like calcium carbonate. Um, I've always thought of it more akin to like growing hair or growing fingernails, but I, don't, I guess maybe no one ever told me that. I, I wouldn't think of it as poop. <laughs> I don't know. But they are like, there is some sort of output that they're constantly um, building upon. Right, cool. Um, I feel like if they're eating plankton, they've got to be pooping, but like I've never really thought about this question before. But anyway. Yeah, me either. I'll, I'll, I know some more people that are uh, more coral biologists uh, that I'll, right. I'll be sure to forward this on to that. <laughs> it's a bit off topic for today, but uh, yeah, yeah, no. It's, it's, a, it's a good question. Yeah, yeah, solid question. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so um, Alexander would like to know, how will climate change affect extreme weather like tornadoes? Yeah, um, so climate change and extreme weather is like definitely a hot topic and it kind of depends on what type of extreme weather and where um, this extreme weather is expected to take place. Um, and so some of these ideas are definitely evolving with time. So I don't feel comfortable saying like all extreme weather everywhere will be enhanced, but there's definitely been a lot of work showing that in some areas we can expect more sort of extreme events like heat waves uh, are one thing that people expect to be more uh, frequent uh, with global warming. Another thing is that uh, the amount of rain that like hurricanes carry like is expected to be um, increased with climate change. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's kind of too much of a, too complicated of a thing to just give like a broad brush, like everything everywhere would be more intense. Yeah. Um, all right, so by the way, I, I don't actually expect to know the answer to all these questions. Yeah, I guess I would uh, also do like a caveat too, like global warming is, uh, or climate change is just like a huge multifaceted topic. And while I am an expert in some things, I'm definitely not in others. And I'll be sure to let you guys know if I've like, I don't know. <laughs> like the social dimensions of climate change are something that's like, oh, I should know a lot more about. But, um, but like, I think not what I work on day to day. Yeah. Totally. It's like yeah. an important thing for people to realize, like just because you're a scientist, and a thing doesn't mean you know like everything about that thing. Like we're not yeah. geniuses. We just know what we study. But anyway, uh, yeah. so so here's a question that you may or may not know the answer to. No, uh, no pressure. Um, as as most alternatives to plastic includes paper and cardboard that comes from trees, um, so it's more biodegradable. But also with fewer trees, there's uh, the less chance for CO two absorption. So. Yeah. Like when we weigh that against plastic use, do you know like what may be better or worse? Yeah, I don't, I actually don't know the answer to this. I think it's a complicated issue. I guess I've, uh, have a few friends that study plastic things. So I'm more inclined to just like, we should just get away from plastic and find other ways to um, buy a grocery or maybe more like cloth reusable bags would be best. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I can't really say what the pros and cons of each. Cool. Okay. Um, Tracy would like to know, how do you respond to friends and family who don't believe in climate change? How do you respond to the general public who have doubts? Um, and is the response that you would give to your friend the, or family the same response that you would give to the public? Um, probably. I mean, I guess it depends on like how big like the pro public is that I'm like facing. Like if it's just like my Uber driver, you can have more of a conversation. 
Um, but yeah, um, so when talking to family, it tends, I tend to like try and, I, I don't know, I think if you go in saying like, you're wrong, and then just like try and yell at them, like no one's gonna listen to you. So normally I try to take an approach of just try to like, one, it's good to like, when you hear information, think about where it came from and just kind of thinking over information is good. So your skepticism, I guess maybe in its heart, at, like are thinking things over isn't necessarily bad, but then I try to like figure out why they might be skeptical. And then it turns out like, I don't know, if you get down to it, a lot of people, it seems like their skepticism is more that they uh, just don't really think that there's anything we can do about it or it's not really their problem. And so it's not so much that they doubt the science, it's more that they doubt like that it's our job to act, which is more depressing than anything. But depending on what exactly they're, um, where their skepticism lies, you can probably then angle the argument. Yeah, I think when you're approaching these kinds of things, it's as important to listen as it is to go in with your argument because you really have to understand where the person's coming from to like know how to approach it. Like it's not yeah. like I have my be all end all message for my science. It's like you gotta, it's, it's a conversation. Yeah, um, also if you just start in like by saying like, well, I know everything, you know nothing. So you're just gonna listen to me. Like you're not gonna, your point's not gonna get across really well. And you, instead you might actually get more of like a knee jerk reaction of them just being like, well, you're extra wrong now. <laughs> I'm never going to agree with anything you say. <laughs> yeah, that's a really, really important lesson for people approaching these topics to learn as early as possible. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess the, I'm maybe still related to that, like questions that I do tend to get that are maybe more valid related to the science are like, how do we know that um, one, like this is like new or how can we even like know like that CO2 is rising uh, over long time scales and how do we know that people cause it? Like there are some uh, uh, like, good answers. Uh, one, like we've been measuring carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since like the mid 1950s, 1956. Um, Charles David Keeling started measuring CO2, but then um, when you combine that with ice core data, which actually has like bubbles from the atmosphere inside, you can actually, and the atmosphere is pretty well mixed, so carbon dioxide levels at one place aren't wildly different from another location. They match up quite well. Through this, we can have like carbon dioxide values going back hundreds of thousands of years in the past. Um, and then there's kind of a human fingerprint on fossil fuel burning where the carbon dioxide that we're adding to the atmosphere is um, isotopically lighter than the carbon dioxide that you normally find in the atmosphere. So you can actually then measure the CO2 for what the isotope composition is. And we've seen this um, uh, <clears throat> effect where there has been this lightening of like atmospheric CO2 that is linked to fossil fuels. Very cool. Um, yeah, but uh, there's lots of yeah, questions and answers. So. Oh, always so. true. Yeah, complicated, complicated stuff. Um, so here, okay, so right now we're in this like very strange time where we're all stuck inside and there's less air travelers, less people driving, there's less people just producing stuff because we're all sitting on our butts. So um, do you think, so there, one of the questions that we have in here right now is, um, do you think that Earth is getting a break from pollution and then a, a a side question is, do you think we'll be able to see in these records that we use that are generally over pretty long periods of time, like, are you going to be able to see in the trees um, in 50 years that we're all sitting on our butts right now? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, there have been uh, some listservs that are on that, like, people are, like, kind of asking these kind of questions of whether or not we'll see it. I think, um, 
I don't study as much of just kind of like short-term pollution output, but I don't know, looking at the newspaper, there are a lot of articles on just like smog and um, local levels of pollution decreasing. So that probably um, has an effect on a global scale. Um, and then looking at uh, like these global scale records, like atmosphere CO2 levels, like it is possible that we could actually see it on um, like, um, like this kind of economic shutdown in like these sort of global climate records. Um, I guess it kind of depends on how long and how severe the shutdown is. Yeah. Um, here's a more coral biology question. Can coral yeah. communicate um, and think for themselves? I don't, I mean, I guess it kind of depends on what you call communication and like thinking, like communication, I'm sure they can like excrete um, chemicals to like tell the other polyps around it like kind of what's happening or I don't know um, I'm actually first off I will say I'm not an expert in this but <laughs> um, but I don't think of corals as like a thinking kind of being they're just kind of staying alive totally so. um so I, I'm an invertebrate as well just I said okay yeah so yeah I'll, I'll, I'll yield to you here <laughs> yeah. so, um think I'm gonna say generally no although it's really, yeah. really hard to measure animal intelligence when you aren't that animal because we tend to always put like this uh well we're viewing it from an, a human perspective so if they're not talking with language if they're not social like we are it's really hard for us to kind of envision what their life is like and what their communication is what their um thinking is but yeah. corals definitely know the difference between their friends and not them like coral is one of these strange yeah animals because it has like every polyp is an individual yeah but, like the whole rock is also like an individual so it's like it's all really quite confusing so they do communicate in terms of like hey i'm another one of you versus hey i'm not and yeah. they also battle each other and like excrete nat like they fight um one coral to another so that's like a communication um but i'll leave it at that because this is not my session, this is a climate change session. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, I was gonna uh, try and, I was thinking of like the battling uh, thing, but then I was just like, I don't actually know, to, I'm not even gonna say it because I don't know enough about it. <laughs> but, um, here's a question, does coral have predators? Um, again, maybe I might yield to you. I don't really think of corals, my sense of it, again, I'm not, much an expert in coral biology is like they don't actually have like things that hunt them like to eat them but they do compete with other species underwater for resources yeah they certainly compete and then parrotfish actually they have those like uh, chompers oh yeah yeah that is true yeah. but that's pretty weird um and when you look at like a beautiful sandy beach um that is pooped out coral so the, the parrotfish take a big chomp of coral and then they munch it up and then they eat they like metabolize the the animal and then they poop out the skeleton um and that's how you get beautiful beaches but i'm now going to not ask you any more biology questions and just pull out the climate change ones um is it possible to extrapolate how big the the like fossil corals that you were looking at once were um uh you mean i guess we don't really think of the fossil corals as like being like degraded uh, with time, um, or at least like not the fossil corals that we're using. Uh, generally, we want kind of like a pristine fossil coral because like if a lot of things have happened to it to maybe wear it down uh, or erode it, like that's probably changed the chemistry. So probably the fossil coral that we're finding is mostly what it was. Cool. 
Um, let's see. Oh, here's a nice one that I just accidentally scrolled away from. What was your favorite aha moment in your research? And uh, what do you think is the coolest fact from the work that you've done? Mm, uh, that's a good question. Um, biggest aha moment. Um, let me see. I guess I'm not really thinking of any sort of aha moment. Mostly like the aha moments are coming to mind or like more things that when I was taking like classes or something and then all of a sudden like they kind of like clicked a little bit more. Um, not exactly pertaining to my research and maybe involving a little bit more than I want to go into here. But I guess uh, one important fact from my research and I think um, a kind of growing body of research is just kind of that natural like unforced climate variability is still really, really strong. Um, and matters a lot in like the climate that we see from like year to year. Um, and we're still working hard to try to be better at predicting it. And um, even if we do have like, you know, like one colder year or something, uh, it's still consistent with our idea of like what global warming is. And so it's kind of this combined effect of like how the climate varies just on its own and um, how climate change um, is warming the earth in general. Um, that kind of determines our outcome. But one, uh, but I guess the main thing is that uh, unforced climate variability is also like really, really powerful. So totally. Um, awesome, thank you. Matt Klein would like to know, what are three actions that students can take to protect coral around the world and generally be better for the environment? Yeah, that's a good uh, question. Um, I, um, I don't know, maybe someone who like actually uh, does more impact stuff might have a different answer, but uh, some of the things that I can think of are one, kind of limit our plastic usage, um, like stop using straws or plastic bags a lot. Cause even it's really, really depressing. Like when I've gotten to go to like some of these really remote places for work, some of which are like islands that aren't even inhabited by people and you go to the beach and there's just all this plastic garbage like washed up and like the nearest humans aren't like for thousands of miles away. Um, so I guess, one is just really try and limit our plastic intake. Um, the other things um, that are probably useful uh, to help protect corals are probably kind of putting in an effort to stop global warming. Uh, global warming kind of has a multifaceted impact on coral reefs. Um, one is just corals really have a um, small tolerance for like really wide temperature ranges. And so they kind of get extra stressed um, when it's, uh, when provided with uh, warmer sea surface temperatures. But um, global warming also has introduced not only extra carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, but also extra carbon dioxide to the ocean. So there's ocean acidification, which is also really rough on corals. So trying to limit um, carbon dioxide emissions is probably another thing that's really helping uh, good for corals. And then probably thirdly is, um, uh, I would say, uh, be wary of like, well, not wary, um, I don't know, like invest in sustainable fisheries and stuff. Um, in a lot of developing regions, especially uh, a lot of the fishing practices are like quite unsustainable and damaging to coral reefs. Totally. Yeah. Um, what do you wish policymakers would do to help with climate change? Mm, um, well, <laughs> yeah, so, I kind of wish that they would make a lot of the, take a lot of the decision making just out of like the 
average person's hands. Like, I don't know, like most of the average person, especially now is just like trying to get by, like they're not really going to be like installing like solar panels on their own house and like really like switching the grid up. Like you kind of need a lot of financial security and just money to make these changes on your own. But if the policymakers were, um, funding like more green research and kind of like forcing companies and power grids to kind of be more uh, sustainable. Like I think that would have the largest impact than everyone kind of making their own choices independently. Yeah. Um, so if you're a student in a high school and you want to um, maybe influence the people who run your high school, uh, to like reduce the carbon footprint of the whole school? Do you have any recommendations for what they should advocate for? Um, not offhand, but that's really cool that you wanna do that. I mean, I would really, I mean, I bet like you probably not the first high school student or maybe not high school student, but there's probably other high schools out there that have tried to take their high school into a greener direction. And they probably have data on like what they did and what maybe what that impact was. Um, Awesome. There's a thing called Project Drawdown, and that gives a whole big list of, uh, of things that we as a whole people can do uh, to positively affect the situation that we're in. Um, so if you want to take a look at that, that can maybe bring some inspiration. I think like the top ones are things that you probably can't really do. Like, um, I think number one is like, properly disposing of refrigerants, which I would never have thought of. I um, mean, another yeah. one is like educating women um, in third world countries, oh, well, everywhere, but that's yeah. where I think the most increase is needed. Um, so, so anyway, if you're looking for inspiration, Project Drawdown is super cool um, and very like research based. Um, next question. Um, do you think that climate change and the threat to biodiversity are linked? Um, Yes, but I would also maybe add another thing in there. It's just like uh, we have more humans on the planet than ever before living a quality of life that people haven't lived before. And so it's kind of like the combined influence of uh, climate change, which is partially caused because of like human influence. Well, totally caused by human influence um, are kind of leading to this loss of biodiversity. Um, but yeah, I, I totally think that they're linked. Yeah. Um, is there a difference between climate change and global warming? No, it was just kind of a PR move. Um, global warming kind of had a lot of people beginning to scoff at like, ah, but it was cold here on this day, like therefore global warming is false. Um, and also global warming is only one part of like the climate change problem. As I mentioned before, like ocean acidification is a huge problem that again is caused by the increase of like greenhouse, well, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So the decision was kind of like climate change uh, better um, describes like all of these effects so, or processes. Yeah. yeah. Um, can coral regenerate after coral bleaching? Um, yes, it can. Um, so sometimes when corals bleach, uh, depending on how long they've bleached for, there seems to be like a certain amount of time where like sometimes these symbiotic um, zooxanthellae that help coral get their nutrients um, can come back to the coral and the coral can start living again. And so sometimes we even see that in the coral records that we've um, sampled is that sometimes there'll be like a stress band in like the coral um, archive that we're looking at, which 
typically indicates that the coral bleached and um, but then was like come came back to life again. Yeah. Cool. Um, Connor would like to know who was the first person to warn us about climate change. Um, this was in the 1880s. I'm now thinking of like the second person, um, Marie Callender. Um, I think it was Svante Arrhenius actually um, in the 1880s. I feel like, can I just check Google really first? Yeah, you can first. check. This is not a <laughs> <laughs> It was um, a long time ago. I don't know. Yeah, well, so the story, I'm blanking on the name a little bit. I think it is Arrhenius. Um, but uh, the story goes that he was from Scandinavia. And so at the time it was more of like a, he kind of joked that, oh, this would be a good thing because it's really cold where he's at and it would be great to see it. Um, yeah, it was um, Arrhenius. Yes. And I guess he publishes his first paper on it in like 1896. But I guess even going back to the 1820s and stuff, um, people were trying to look at um, the role of Earth's atmosphere and like what it does for us. And like, if we didn't have an atmosphere, like how much colder would the Earth be kind of stuff. Um, but the idea of carbon dioxide causing global warming was Arrhenius's idea. And he didn't think it would, like that link was that strong. And so he kind of joked that it would be good to warm up cold places like Sweden. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, Layla would like to know, is there anything about the impact of climate change on the health and mental health of researchers who are studying this every day? Oh, um, <laughs> I don't know what like research says, but I don't know. The people I work with, like that is kind of a common question or are you just depressed thinking about it? I think there's a little bit like when you're doing research that you're kind of able to like separate yourself from it. But I also think that uh, overall, like a lot of us are hopeful that we'll still have technological advances. And I mean, one thing that we're also learning from this is like, there are a lot of people that care about it. Like we might not be like the people in power, but there is like people care. And I don't know if there is high hope for like us being able to um, develop technologies that can help us with changing our trajectory. Cool. And um, we've got a bit of a, a philosophical question here. Let's say, um, a green light consumed the earth and turned every human to stone. How many years would it take for the earth to return to a healthier form without humans? Wow. Um, <laughs> a green light too. Uh, <laughs> I, um, well, so a few things are coming to mind. So one, if like just all human activity stopped immediately, we'd probably see like things coming back. Um, I guess depending on what you want to think about, like as things coming, or maybe, um, some things changing on the matter of like weeks to months. I mean, I think there have been some stories going around with just people in quarantine. You're seeing animals in places where they wouldn't normally go. But um, generally it's thought that um, like kind of the earth system takes about like a thousand years for like things to kind of like recalibrate. Um, or at least it's like a thousand years uh, for like the ocean to circulate. So there's still a lot of like global warming um, or like potential that we've put in the system that still hasn't been like fully realized, like the rest of the system still hasn't really responded. So it's probably going to be on the order of like, I don't know, thousands of years um, before like things go back to like our pre-human kind of state. Cool. Um, does climate change have anything to do with air pollution? Uh, well, some people call uh, 
carbon dioxide like a form of air pollution. Um, so I guess I would say yes. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, I think there's sometimes a disconnect between like po pollution, like plastic pollution and like, yeah, like, like particles, carbon, yeah. like uh, schmutz that comes out of trucks and yeah. then carbon dioxide that you can't see. It's all yeah, yeah. confusing. Um, I know that I have to like go over that with my dad again and again and again and again. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a really interesting idea or interesting point that like um, this, some types of atmospheric pollution are like invisible. Like you can't see carbon dioxide or methane. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, let's see. We answered that one. What is your favorite part of your job and your least favorite part of your job? Um, my absolute favorite part of my job is probably when I get to go into the field, which I've been doing less and less of recently. Um, but just getting to go um, to these coral reefs has been like incredible. Like I was originally like from like Muncie, Indiana, like didn't even grow up near an ocean, getting to go to like these crazy, um, really remote locations are like truly special. Um, my least favorite part of my job is so much, like you just end up spending so much time like by yourself, like doing research. Um, it's really quite isolating. Um, but also I guess another thing that I thought of is one of my favorite parts of my job is like, I've met a lot of like really cool people who are also um, in the field and it's really fun to get to work with them when you do get to be more social but there's just a lot of time that you spend like doing research by yourself yeah um, here's a good question and I can give back up on this uh, just in case how does climate change affect infectious diseases oh man uh, I'm gonna bow out on well actually wait I did have an idea um, so there are types of infectious diseases that are carried by um, vectors like mosquitoes or other types of animals. And so that, those we kind of think uh, will be affected by climate change. So if you have warmer, warming kind of everywhere, um, like that range which mosquitoes find tolerable is like expanding. So you might be able to get like malaria in places where you wouldn't normally get malaria. And so that will have an impact on infectious disease spread. But Aside from that, um, I don't really know. I'll, uh, Sarah, totally I don't know if you have any other things. Yeah, we <laughs> talk about mosquito-borne okay. illnesses because, yeah, as the yeah. range expands, we're all just in. Ooh, whoops. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, um, awesome. Here's an interesting question. Um, what is your opinion of wax worms that can eat plastic, and do you think um, that might be helpful in the future? Uh, what kind of worms? Wax, wax worms? worms that can like eat plastic. Um, I'm going to say oh, this is, I, I haven't heard of this until now, but either. that seems super cool. I mean, that would be wild. I don't know, um, how it would work. Like if you, I mean, so as I mentioned earlier, there are like just plastic, there's plastic like everywhere on it. I don't know, like if these worms might outcompete like local worms and if there'd be problems with that, but I don't know, like if something can actually eat through plastic, that seems pretty good um yeah totally i'm yeah. all for it Let's, yeah uh, play with that um and the next question if all of earth's ice melts and flows into the ocean um what would happen particularly uh, earth's rotation oh uh i don't know if it would all of earth's melting 
<laughs> the only way I'm thinking that if all of Earth's ice melting like could impact Earth's rotation is maybe if it was like all the ice melt was because like some sort of like asteroid hit the Earth and <laughs> like melted everything. I don't think that there's any reason to expect that Earth's ice melting would alter rotation unless oh you know what okay unless like it's like because it's at the poles and you might then be changing like the kind of center of mass but i don't let's yeah. uh, change the question to be about like yeah. what about the um the gyres in the ocean because that's a in a sense rotation yeah Not yeah but uh predominantly driven by uh wind i guess um and um just earth's rotation so in pretty much all the ocean basins you see um kind of kind of a similar kind of type of ocean circulation um i'm gonna like center in the north pacific because that's kind of where i tend to think about things most um uh where uh we tend to have um going around the equator like water tends to move from like south america to asia and then um along the north american coast it tends to flow more from canada down to mexico and then in the opposite direction around the Kuroshio current uh, going up from, I don't know, like Papua New Guinea all the way up to Russia and then across the top. Um, and, but most of that is kind of driven by winds. And I don't think that it would have, if all of Earth's ice melted, um, I don't think that would be too heavily affected, but it could really highly impact um, thermal haline circulation, which is uh, more famous in the North Atlantic. Um, which tends to drive um, a lot of ocean, Earth's um, like deep ocean circulation as a whole. Um, and so I guess that was a really wild idea that I'd never heard about until I got into this field. Um, that um, it, I think it was Wally Broker that first kind of turned the, this idea as like the global conveyor belt. But uh, it's the idea that a lot of um, these wind driven gyres and um, differences in water density can um, drive like global um, ocean circulation. Um, and so I guess maybe the more, main center point of this, I'm really rambling now, sorry guys, uh, <laughs> is up near the Earth, uh, North Atlantic. Uh, normally what we have is this like really cold water meeting like really um, like salty water um, that's formed either through like um, when you have like ice forming in the far North Atlantic or anywhere it will like, you'll have kind of this briny leftover. Um, but then also you have like the more salty Mediterranean um, kind of having outflow all in the North Atlantic. So this creates this really cold and salty water, which is just quite dense. And so that sinks and kind of drives like this kind of 3D like ocean circulation. But um, people talk about and perhaps the plot line for the day after tomorrow was that there's like a freshwater influx in the North Atlantic from ice melting, which then turned off this um, global ocean circulation, which then totally modified how heat was like um, sent around the planet. And then in the movie, the day after tomorrow caused an ice age everywhere. So. I actually kind of love the day after tomorrow. It's like, yeah, so no, it's great. It's a great movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so we try to keep these to 45 minutes, so we always ask people the same last two questions. One okay. is, um, what is something that you wish everybody in the world knew about your area of expertise? And then yeah. what's something that you wish everybody in the world knew about literally anything? It can be mm. as significant or silly as you'd like. Okay. Um, okay, so I think the one that I think I wish people knew about my field is actually one that I kind of touched on earlier. 
is that um, we like natural variability is still quite strong and we'll see it in just like the global mean temperatures and just because we have a year that wasn't warmer than the year previously um, perhaps due to like a large El Nino event or a La Nina event or um, natural variability is still consistent with the idea of global warming. Um, global warming is kind of looking at or climate change is looking at kind of um, mean temperatures going out uh, decades to centuries and just what happens on the order of like one to two years doesn't kind of disprove or prove any sort of theory. Um, things that I wish people knew in general. Uh, I have two ideas for that. Um, one is, uh, I really didn't know this until I was like mostly through my undergraduate career, but um, anyone can get involved in scientific research. Um, especially, uh, it's a lot easier if you're located at or near a university, um, but when I was an undergrad, it really was just a matter of emailing a few professors and just being like, I think this sounds cool. Um, do you have anything for me to do in your lab? I just kind of want to see what research is like. And everyone, I don't know, you spend all of your time working on research. It's kind of a flattering question. Like no one's going to be mean about it. And at worst, maybe they're busy and they won't respond to your email. But if you want to get involved in research, I highly recommend just reaching out. People are friendly and nice and science is for everyone. The second thing I was thinking of is I spent a lot of time, are you used to, and alone in the lab doing research and I would listen to um, Harry Potter audiobooks constantly to keep me company. And the one thing I wish everyone knew is that Jim Dale is the superior narrator to Stephen Fry. <laughs> For <them. laughs> awesome. Uh, that's a lovely note to end it on. So yeah. <laughs> um, uh, thank you everybody for joining us today. If you can support our effort, go to patreon.com slash Skype a scientist or paypal.me slash Skype a scientist. This program couldn't exist without donor support, and I cannot overemphasize that. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us today and giving us all your awesome knowledge. This was super fun. And Erin, thank you for signing for us, as always. Um, and we are going to be here again at 3.30 p.m. Eastern, and we're going to talk about diversity, specifically focused around islands. Um, and also 4.30, talking about Earth Day in general. So thank you for being here. See ya later. Thanks everybody.